Hello, I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University and we've made it to episode 22 of the Media Sport podcast series. Thanks to the many people from around the world who continue to download and listen to all, some or the occasional episode. Setting up and running the series continues to be a learning experience to say the least from my perspective and the feedback I receive from listeners makes it all the more worthwhile. This episode sees our attention turned to computer gaming and eSport in particular. My guest is T.L. Taylor, Professor of Comparative Media Studies at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A key international figure in the sociological study of computer games, she is a leader in the MIT Game Lab, which is based in the School of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. I offered TL an invitation to record this episode because I admire the way she goes about her qualitative research, never losing sight of the deep interrelationship between social and cultural relations and computer game cultures and practices. Her ability to present sophisticated analysis in an accessible fashion struck me as I read her 2012 book, Raising the Stakes, Esports and the Professionalisation of Computer Gaming. It's a book that combines fieldwork, finely tuned observational skills, interviews and a refreshing self-reflexivity in owning up to the struggles involved in gaining access to a subculture and indeed writing a book. TL is also the author of Play Between Worlds, Exploring Online Game Culture, published in 2009, and a co-author of Ethnography and Virtual Worlds, A Handbook of Method, published by Princeton University Press in 2012. I can think of no one better to speak with about computer games and esports. TL's Twitter handle is at ybika, Y-B-I-K-A, and further information about her can be found on her personal website, tltaylor.com, T-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R. TL, thanks for taking time out of your evening to speak with me for the Media Sport podcast series. Thanks, it's great to be here. How did your interest in gaming begin, and how did it morph into research and teaching in-game studies? Uh, it became... It began as a distraction from finishing my dissertation. (laughs) So in the 1990s, when I was doing my dissertation work, I was focused on embodiment in virtual worlds. There had been a lot of conversation in the 90s around identity formation online, but not as much thinking about forms of embodiment in digital spaces. So I was finishing up that work, as often happens at the end of big projects, procrastinating, distracted, and started playing a game called EverQuest, which was one of the first large graphical, massively multiplayer online games. And I had heard about EverQuest through my research at the time with people who were doing text-based virtual worlds or social virtual worlds. So I started playing for leisure. And (laughs) as often happens, I suppose, with those of us who are ethnographers, I quickly started seeing things that caught my eye and thought, oh boy, there's some really interesting things happening here. Um, so I, you know, there's a there's a little bit of EverQuest in my dissertation, but it really grew and became uh, my next big project, the, the subject of that first book that you mentioned. For the uninitiated, could you ex- first explain what esports are, how big mm-hmm. they are as an industry? Um, well, <laughs> what they are is, I think, in itself a fascinating area to think of 
about and look at how people are talking about it. My, my shorthand answer to what esports are are pretty much formalized competitive computer gaming. So it's the kind of formalization of comp competition in computer gaming spaces. The little asterisk I would put uh, over that, though, is that over my years studying it, the very nature of what counts in that category as esport has been contested by even the most hardcore of esports fans. So I tend to take a fairly, um, I'm interested in how communities express their definitions of that. I'm interested in how communities' definitions of esports also change over time. Um, so that's just for the definitional side of it. Um, in terms of its size, uh, it's, it's, really boomed in the last few years in particular when I was finishing the manuscript for the 2012 book as I read in the text I you know we there had been a kind of big uh, bubble that had burst around esports I was I left that field work being very unsure if it would just really stay a kind of niche thing that only the most hardcore of fans and players would follow and in fact, what's happened in the last couple of years is the rise of live streaming, which has completely opened up and shaped, reshaped that uh, space. And so, you know, the current book I'm doing is on live streaming in part because I'm trying to track what's happened in esports with that technology coming around. And part of the way you're trying to come to terms with this is through, a, I know, an esport history project. What does that project involve and you know what i'm assuming perhaps incorrectly that that history is relatively short but what does it reveal about the evolution i suppose not only of esport but of gaming in general yeah it's oh you you've you've found my little side project that has not <laughs> not <laughs> developed yet but i just feel it's it's got such potential i think one of the things that strikes me especially at this moment in esports is there are a lot of people who are new to esports who come through it, for example, primarily through like League of Legends, live streaming, and they don't actually understand that this is a history that goes back, depending on you count it, to the 90s and earlier, <laughs> has roots in grassroots, community organizing, and certain formulations of expertise. So <clears throat> I've, I've realized over the years, um, I've become a much as much a historian as an ethnographer, <laughs> and mm. in part because I, I don't know, I collect cultural detrius along the way and i meet a lot of people who tell stories so um i do have this idea uh, at some point of trying to <clears throat> make public and share those stories and those artifacts and you know videos whatever it may be i mean i can't tell you how much i just takes i take so much delight i met a guy uh, like uh, last spring and he was an old starcraft player there. He had played in Korea, and he brought me his trading card because I was like, I got us, yeah, right. So they, they, you know, they used to make trading cards like baseball cards, yeah, for uh, <laughs> for players. And he had told me he had this. I said, oh, I'd love to see it. And so he brought it to our co coffee, and then at the end he said, that's for you. You can keep it. And I thought, oh my god, what a fantastic object. We should find a way to, you know document this early history uh, real briefly too i say the second component of this it actually ties into gender which is there's a tremendous number of women who were integral in building esports whether it was at the collegiate level 
people or behind the scenes in organizations. And those histories, I would say, are have been completely forgotten and erased for the most part. And so I was thinking about this history project at the same time I was thinking about how to make visible the work women had been doing in esports since the beginning. And gender is a problematic issue in uh, the sports industries and cultures more generally, and certainly in esport, particularly when it comes to, I suppose, online's expression of sexism and misogyny. Now, and various other issues around, you know, institutional structures and, and gendered inequality. But you're presently also involved in the AnyKey initiative, which it, which addresses these issues. What is what is AnyKey, and what, what's it aiming to achieve? Yeah, so AnyKey is uh, this initiative sponsored by Intel and ESL, the Electronic Sports League. And the hope is basically to help <clears throat> build, support, sustain more diverse and inclusive esports spaces. And I often, in the sort of North American context uh, or framing, I think of this as like Title IX for esports. <laughs> like, how do we actually start thinking structurally, systematically, in meaningful ways to so we don't end up with uh, where where we're headed? To be frank, right? Segregation, diminished opportunities for women to participate in the the space, gauntlets of racism, sexism, homophobia. So like, what can we do to actually make positive change? And so there's two components to any key. Uh, There's this research side and then there's this initiative side. Uh, So I handle the research side and the really fantastic Morgan Romine, who was the woman who founded the Frag Dolls, if you know about them, they were one of the early (laughs) professional uh, teams and communities out there. She also has a PhD in anthropology from UC Irvine. So mm-hmm. we're, we're kindreds in that way. And so the, the thing that we're just working to do is try to sort of identify key thematic areas um, that are worth exploring and digging into more. And then on her end, picking those up and seeing what, what change could actually be made. So just to give you one very concrete example, uh, we run these workshops, which are closed door workshops with stakeholders, industry, community, you name it, a range. And we try to identify major target issues of concern and things that could be taken action on. And then Morgan tries to build initiatives from that. Our last one was on moderation, uh, online chat moderation. Um, I don't know if you recall, there was, there's been numerous issues of problematic chat in esports spaces it's not just esports it's all across live streaming chat and so we really wanted to take that up and sort of say what does it look like to think strategically about that space um one of the results of that is that morgan has been working really closely with moderation teams both at esl at twitch and community level to do codes of conduct and working on thinking about how to uh, refine bot systems to help moderators manage, you know, tens of thousands of people chatting at once, right? So what does it look like to sort of moderate and community manage a stadium experience, but it's in a chat space? So so, um, we're just trying to do what we can to productively tackle that. And just today we uh, launched, uh, one of the things we heard in our conversations is how important role models were. For example, women who had come up in the scene. So we've been making a concerted effort on that. And we just today 
they uh, released a second role models profile video um, profiling uh, the fantastic uh, Potter from CLG Red. She's this amazing team leader, uh, competitive uh, woman playing. And so, so we're just, we're trying to tackle it, everything from the symbolic to the structural and organizational. It's ambitious. <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic intervention is what it is. Um, <laughs> where can people find that video? Because I can pop it in the show notes. Oh, great. Um, probably the easiest way is just to go to anykey.org. Um, you can see our other videos there. You can read the research white papers as they come out. We do blog posts. So that's probably the easiest hub to find it. So what you've mentioned there speaks to continuities and discontinuities between eSport and for want of a better term, physical or more traditional sports. What are those continuities and discontinuities in my mind? I'm interested in, in the way that eSport actually changes sport, but you can also go the other way, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I think my approach to this kind of question has been that I don't have a... I don't have a category definition approach. Uh, um, you know, eSports relationship with the... the Esports relationship with the category of sport has changed over time, and I think will continue to change over time. How people in the esports space understand their relationships with sports has changed, and vice versa. And I, you know, I will give you one, just one very simple example of that. When I started this research in 2003, the people I interviewed consistently evoked sports as an important way point in understanding their activities, their experiences, the f structures, the organizational forms they wanted to create. It, it was the dominant rhetorical waypoint. And people very frequently, players, for example, would talk about their competitive computer gaming in light of their other sporting experience that was a just a very consistent theme i've noticed a remarkable change in the last few years where there are many more people willing to sort of give up that rhetorical waypoint and say hey, yeah i don't really care if we're called sports or not and i think part of that has been the profound shift in how people understand what they're doing as like legitimate or not so I think sports was a way for people to legitimize, explain their activities. It situated them. And I think what's fascinating is how that has loosened so dramatically. Um, in a slightly flipped version, when I was doing my research in the early 2000s, it, you'll notice if you read the book that fighting games are not mentioned in that book. They're, they're not. I, have a, I think I have one photo in there, but they are not a part of the field site that was constituted for me as I was following trails and in part that's large part most of it is because the fighting game scene back then really did not see themselves as part of esports in fact they actively resisted that designation for all kinds of interesting reasons that is also changing <laughs> so one of the most interesting things is the last few years seeing the fighting game scene start to use the language of esports to explain their activities so that's a long way of saying I don't I don't have for myself a, f a formal definitional category that then I run up everything against. I'm much more interested in how communities 
hail or reject different frameworks to understand their practices. Those are like the fascinating moves, right? Like why we decide, like what constitutes meaningful human action? Mm. What counts as embodied action? Like to think about those in relation to computation and technology for me is the much more interesting question rather than like, yes, it is. No, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) What forms does e-sport fandom take? I'm imagining that it shifts via culture and context and the style of league or tournament. Mm, Yeah, it's a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot because, um, in fact, one of the things uh, I, I, let me start over. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot, especially in relation to the work with AnyKey, is how do we understand and support participation at a range of levels, right? So what does it mean to be, you know, the person who watches maybe one esports tournament a week, the person who's going to go to events, the person who's going to try to emulate a style of play. There's actually this tremendous range of the ways that kind of fandom gets expressed. Um, I go to events all the time. And now with the, with the growth of merch in the esports community, where you can buy t-shirts and, you know, team logos and sticker, you know, like that also becomes a really important part of the expression of fandom. So um, I think this is one of the things I'm trying to spend more time being aware of and looking for is the the range of participation. Again, in the past, it felt like it used to be, you know, you would download those VODs or the, the replay files, or you knew the secret website that all the esports people went to. And I think, um, you know, the amount now of live events that people have access to going to, the possibilities for spectating, the commercialization through merchandise of all that, all of those become really now interesting threads into fandom, I think. I suppose the popular image that always gets thrown about is the image, uh, the, the images of um, games in stadiums in South Korea, mm, yeah. um, which, which obviously hails an explicitly sporting frame that, you know, that big mm-hmm. sports always been about big spectacle yeah. but but esports given the live streaming and given the different types of play i mean it exists at different scales and i'm and i'm assuming yeah you know depending on who's wanting to use it it, it shifts form as well in terms of what it looks like to both follow and to play yeah it's a great point and i think you know we still of course have uh, the range of from the you know tournament styles from the local tournament that takes place in a dorm on a campus <laughs> that's put to be, put together by the local club uh, all the way up to as you say we now in in Europe and North America have many more of those huge stadium events that we used to only see in places like South Korea. The one thing I will say about those events is I think they are. They are complicated events because they hail both sports in terms of stadium sports, but they also hail other kinds of cultural events like concerts and music festivals. And, you know, if you go to, I I don't know if you've had a chance, if you've gone to any of these lately, the lighting production alone that happens at these events, the elaborate stages, uh, there's something similar and different to sports in a stadium of course now sports themselves have those spectacle moments (laughs) with 
halftime shows or whatever you may, but there's something I think quite different that these events sometimes hail. And in the current book on live streaming, one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing is hanging out backstage at these events and talking to the producers and hearing them reflect on how they are trying to construct these events as esports media entertainment products that will go out over the stream. And, you know, it's, it's not just that they're pointing a camera at a person with a ball. <laughs> they are really trying to construct um, spectacles that people want to watch and be, you know, tuned into for the course of the weekend. What's the significance of live streaming? Why are you writing a book about it? I had just handed in the manuscript for the um, eSports book, and this is when I was still living back in Sweden. I was home one night. Twitch had just recently launched. I had seen them at DreamHack, and I was like, what is this? Um, and anyway, I was, I was home watching, and they were broadcasting a event. I think it was a StarCraft event from Paris. And it, you know, the way Twitch is, you can see how many other people are watching. And I saw it was me and like 10,000 other people. And I thought, holy cow, wait a minute. <laughs> mm. I did not have this in my, you know, the esports book. I sort of knew live streaming was out there, but it was really this break. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to write an article about that to catch up. <laughs> and once I started digging into it, I found that live streaming wasn't only transforming esports but it was transforming gaming and game culture writ large. And I became very interested in variety streamers, those people who are broadcasting lots of different kinds of games and developing a, a, and genre conventions and communities. And so um, it just seemed like it has been a kind of transformative moment in gaming and spectatorship that I wanted to spend more time on. And with its popularity, of course, comes issues of intellectual property and, and rights. And of course, yeah. and so with Twitch, you then see YouTube um, and then also the entrance of broadcasters um, of esports, or ESPN uh, lately. I mean, how how is it both similar and different to perhaps the way many of us might think about more traditional media formats? Yeah, <clears throat> I love the IP conversations. <laughs> For me, they've always um, been an important part of my work because I've always been very interested in the ways <clears throat> communities who undertake labor uh, around their gaming, whether it's MMO players who are creating mods or esports communities that are creating tournaments and rule sets or live streamers who are coming up with in some ways, entirely new forms of entertainment media, how those people who are putting in all that time and energy commitment, who understand that or feel they have some ownership, how game companies are handling that challenge. And unfortunately, what we tend to have seen over the years is even though there's been a huge rise of user-generated content, there's still all these moments where game companies, developers step in and put their, put their thumb down. Um, Esports space is complicated in particular right now. Live streaming in general, I would say right now, what's we're in this moment that is going to change probably pretty soon where everybody's kind of been playing nice. 
Uh, in part because I think up until this point, nobody really quite knew how much money was circulating. Uh, nobody, you know, it still seemed like it was a good marketing gig for, you know, marketing a tool for game developers. I think we're very quickly coming to the point where those licensing deals, uh, questions about who owns stuff, who's really going to be taking a cut of the profits is really coming to a head. And I think we're seeing it in everything from um, recent skirmishes between Riot and League of Legends teams, the teams that feel they are not well served by the, and I'm doing air quotes, ecosystem, <laughs> because it seems to be the term that esports uh, biz dev people like these days. We're seeing it all the way from that to one of my favorite cases in this space has been around uh, Spectate spectate faker. I don't know if you know about this, where basically, um, you know, there's a way to follow your favorite players in the League of Legends client. One of these famous players was contracted. Uh, he's a South Korean player on a South Korean team. He was contracted, so he was bound by their. Um, rules and governance and broadcast structures. Somebody figured out how to broadcast, how to just constantly broadcast his games um, using Twitch. <clears throat> he was actually contrasted to to uh, be broadcasting on a competing platform, and there was this amazing skirmish between Riot, the broadcasting platforms, this player, and his governing organization, Kespa over who owned the rights to that, who actually gets to say where he's allowed to broadcast. Wow. Um, yeah, there's, you know, one of the things I love about game studies is there are always these amazing critical cases that help us think about broader cultural conversations we need to be having, we are having. And I think, you know, esports is the same, live streaming is the same. How, you know, how do we understand who actually owns those creative productions that those folks are putting on Twitch day in and day out? Is it? I tend to think it's not. It doesn't lie just with the game companies. <laughs> There's a co-creation process we've got to get our heads around, or companies have to get their heads around. The wider cultural conversations that gaming opens out on, one of those at the moment throughout a number of different social domains is, of course, the rise of online gambling. Um, and, you know, the, the effect that has on not only the way people live their lives, but on the, the very structure of, you know, the sorts of events that people like to gamble on. How is gambling impacting the conduct and organisation of esports? Yeah, huge. I mean, there's just been this recent scandal. <clears throat> I don't know if you followed around um, Counter-Strike Go, Global Offensive, where and it dovetails in with live streaming, where um, a number of folks who were live streaming their gambling uh, were found out to have had stakes in the sites, the websites that they were directing lots of folks to, um, and we're talking lots of money. Um, we're talking often underage folks. Uh, so the gambling stuff is funny. It's always been. Um, there have been a few gambling, there have been several significant gambling scandals over the years, but I think this recent CSGO one has really got people thinking about what are the kind of enforcement governance mechanisms, how do old debates about being 
transparent about where your money is coming from and payola. You know, the old the old debates about, you know, if you're putting out media broadcast products, are you disclosing if you have a financial stake in those kinds of things? Um, I think they've all really come to a head. Um, so I don't know what's it's a big issue. Uh, it, it's, I think, going to keep being a big issue. Um, but it's still not full. It's definitely not a fully regulated place. And you, you may know too, at this point, Las Vegas is getting very interested in how to <clears throat> get in on the esports space. There's talk of opening a stadium there. Um, you know, uh, being able to have Las Vegas as a place where you can go to do esports gambling is getting a lot more attention. So, uh, your, your instincts are right to flag it, but it's, um, it hasn't fully been dealt with, I think. Now, a recurring question that I ask um, my guest in each episode, if you could nominate a book, and now it might be on eSport, it might be on gaming, it might be on something else entirely, but if you could nominate a book that you believe anyone listening should read, what would it be? Um, it's funny because it's not a gaming book. <laughs> um, it's actually a book about gender and in particular about masculinity. This is, I think, one of the things, one of the things I try to do in my esports book is a little bit turn the tables. Often when we, we, I'm saying with air quotes, talk about gender, it tends to be a conversation just about women. And so in the esports book, I really tried to think about masculinities and different forms of masculinities that work in the scene. So I think we still need a ton more work on that. So the book I would suggest people check out is a fantastic uh, book by C.J. Pascoe called Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School. It's this terrific ethnography um, looking at masculinity in those teenage years, which are often incredibly tumultuous and fraught and really trying to give, you know, it builds on a, a really nice tradition in masculinity, critical masculinity studies. But uh, I think that there's a lot there we could still leverage back into game studies. So that would be my pick. Thank you for sharing your time and insight. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.